Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello, and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode 170. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hey everyone. Hi, Perry. On today's episode, we're going to be answering your beauty questions about shampoo and what it does to hair color, whether collagen works in skincare products, and whether the curly girl method of treating hair is the way to go. Plus, we're going to cover a couple of hot topics in the cosmetic industry. But before we get into that, let's say hello to our fellow co-hosts. How's it going, Valerie? Things are going good. I'm in California. It's very cold here, not traveling for a while. Good to be back in the lab with all of my teammates. Excellent. You know, I just got done with my list of goals for 2019. I'm always pleased by that, but I think I have too many. There's never too many. Everyone has the opportunity to keep aspiring and accomplish things. So I disagree with that. Well, I have 139. <laughs> Well, that's, uh, you know, if you want to look at it, that's like 1.8 per day that you have to complete. I don't think that's bad. Yeah, you know what? When you put it that way, that does sound good. I, I thought maybe I should pare it down, but uh, now now with your encouragement, I'm not going to. Yeah, don't hold me to the math, but um, it's, you know, one, just think of it as one a day and you can take one day off a week. I think that'll be enough for you to do. Excellent point. You know, one of my goals was to record at least 50 episodes of this show. I think we can do it. The fans have spoken and they're glad we're back. They are. And speaking of back, why don't we get into some beauty science news? So the first story I want to talk about, and we'll just talk about it shortly because it's it's a little bit complicated, but did you see the story, uh, well, like a few weeks ago uh, from Reuters about Johnson & Johnson and the notion that they found asbestos in some of their talc. I did, and Johnson & Johnson has been in the news for quite some time with their talc and does it cause cancer. They've lost court cases, won court ca- cases, and I think when you say it's a little complicated, you know, we all know that's an understatement. This is a really complicated case. Yeah, and I don't know... Uh, in reading up on this, I read through that whole Reuters article, which was which was quite long and quite detailed, and it had a lot of history and stuff, and it referred back to things from like the 1970s and things. And the 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 thing about it is, you know, I they say all these things, and they 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 seem to be trying to say that baby powder causes cancer, and Johnson and Johnson knows it. And I just can't help but remember that it doesn't. There is no evidence that baby powder causes cancer. And as much as uh, information as the, the Reuters article had, uh, they never got away from that. Uh, they, they, they kept implying that there was some safety concern that consumers should have here. But there's just no evidence that there is safety concerns. Well, I think there's two separate things going on. So firstly, um, there's this allegation that Johnson and Johnson's baby powder as a product, which mostly contains talc, has caused cancer in individuals. And that's where Johnson and Johnson has had success and 
uh, been found liable for damages in the various courts of law in different states. The second issue that was brought up in the Reuters article is that Johnson and Johnson knew some of their batches of talc had asbestos in them and uh, didn't disclose that, or I don't know if they did or did not do anything about it, but that's a separate issue. And I don't think that you can say, well, the talc had asbestos in it, talc causes cancer. I don't think you can say that. Right. And that seems to be what the Reuters article was trying to do. Um, And I can't really speak to that about Johnson Johnson's practices, both in the 1950s, the 60s, the 70s, and and today. I I know people are working at J&J, and they don't want to produce products that are causing cancer. So, you know, I can see that uh, at least the scientists there that that I know anyway wouldn't be doing this. So I I don't really know where they... Uh, you know, I can see the, the Reuters article was kind of inspired by by uh, litigators, by lawyers and people suing Johnson & Johnson, and I can see how their view might be a bit biased. But that doesn't change the science, and the, the science is that t- there is no evidence linking talc use to cancer. Right. And, you know, you mentioned your uh, friends who work at Johnson & Johnson don't want to produce products that hurt people. I don't really believe any company wants to do that. and I'm not defending Johnson and Johnson uh, if what really happened with asbestos being in the t- in the talc as it was mined is true, but uh, no company wants to kill their customers. It's not a good marketing practice. And you know maybe something happened in their supply chain. They made a discovery. They either owned up to it or didn't own up to it. Whatever. But I don't think that we should confuse these two different aspects of what Johnson and Johnson is going through right now. I think they're they're getting merged and people are making these generalizations. And to say that talc causes cancer, I don't know. Maybe their specific product did because of their supply chain, but that doesn't mean talc causes cancer. And I think uh, until we look into it a bit more, I think we'll leave it there. Yeah, it's it's very complicated. So it's 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 challenging uh, to comment just because we don't have all the details. But I do have another fun article, speaking of lawsuits and stuff. Unilever has filed a lawsuit against Target. I saw that in the news. Everyone knows Target, uh, the very sure, sure. high-end store to go to. Where you, Wait, is that you how, they, that's a- how they that's how they say it in uh, California? Huh? <laughs> Target, yeah. So um, anyway, Target's great. I love getting products there. It's uh, I think we have a lot of listeners who can agree that they probably spend way too much money there. But uh, Unilever, they're the parent company of the spa skincare brand Dermalogica, and they have filed a lawsuit against Target in the U.S., alleging that Target is not allowed or authorized to sell Dermalogica, but they're getting it and selling it anyway. Even worse, Unilever is alleging that Target is removing the holograms and quality control tags that let the consumer know the product is indeed authentic Dermalogica. Wow. Why would they be doing that? Yeah. What's the big deal? Target should be allowed to sell what they want, except uh, Dermalogica is a professional skincare brand. They only retail their products in authorized dermy treatment centers, skin centers, medispas, salons, spas where you can get facials. That's the only way Dermalogica says they're willing to sell their products so that they can guarantee that you as the customer are getting authentic Dermalogica product and that it's not counterfeit. It is what it says it is. Right. That's 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 kind of that's an issue called uh, diversion, if I recall correctly. Exactly. And diversion 
is a huge problem in the pro beauty industry. So as a premium supplier of products, you know, you want your customers to know they're getting what you're selling and other people, well, we'll call them crooks, diverters of product. (laughs) They, they want to make a lot of money selling premium product. And they're very good at either taking product that they've obtained illegally somehow and, and reselling it into a channel that it's not supposed to be, or they can create counterfeit product. They're very good at replicating the packaging, the fragrance, the formula aesthetics. They can even copy the batch codes to a T for that product so that the bottle could be traced back to the manufacturer. The manufacturer can say, yeah, that's my batch code, but something's wrong with this product. We didn't make it. And for me as a consumer and you guys as consumers should be alarmed because you think you're buying something and you're not getting the same product. There could be different ingredients in there from what the label is claiming. And if you have an allergy, you're in big trouble and there's no quality control. You know, we don't know where these products are being made. And oftentimes, you know, the counterfeiters or diverters, they're in it to make money. So they have to make the cheapest product possible. So they may be using industrial grade ingredients or literally just putting whatever they can find in there. And there's no supply chain history on it. Well, this is very surprising that a, a big company like Target would do this. I mean, it's it's understandable that like your local drugstore carries something that, you know, it's kind of the, a small business, but someone as big as Target, I mean, someone's going to notice. Yeah. And I don't think they care. I mean, there's no law that says they're not allowed to sell that product. It's not illegal. It's just not part of the Dermalogica brand ethos. And so for Target, you know, their consumers want this elevated spa skincare luxury. And I can't speak on behalf of Target, but I'm sure they're like, well, you know, this can sell. We're not breaking any laws. But if indeed Target is tampering with the products, that's not going to look good for them. But what our consumers should know that it's important for consumer safety to make sure that you're only purchasing products from authorized resellers that are supposed to have it. And you can do that typically by checking the website of a brand. Uh, Many brands have spots on their website where they dictate their dedicated retail spaces. On some level, you think a brand would appreciate having more distribution, right? Because Target is going to be a lot a lot more distribution in Target than you get in like any single spa or something. This is true. And I work for a brand that has diverted product all the time. And I used to think that, well, whoa, it's sales. Why don't we just worry about the numbers? But the fact is, you know, maybe we don't know where they're getting the product. Maybe Dermalogica doesn't know how Target is acquiring it. And because there's not that supply chain to go back, there's no way to know if it's real product or not. And we've all seen that breaking news, we went to the grocery store and found all this fake product. Now it's 6 p.m. and that really does happen. And then the other thing is, you know, Dermalogica considers themselves a a nice spa brand and maybe the brand equity they have is diluted if you can just go to your local 7-Eleven and pick it up. It certainly impacts their ability to sell a brand out of their salon if somebody could just go to Target and get it for, you know, a dollar cheaper. Exactly. And I would be interested to know uh, what our Beauty Brains listeners think, if they think Unilever is justified in filing this lawsuit, or if it's not a big deal, let Target sell whatever they want to. All right. Yeah. Uh, Beauty Brains Nation, chime in. So if you want to, uh, uh, you can just uh, tweet at us at the Beauty Brains uh, on Twitter and uh, let us know what you think. 
Are we ready for some beauty questions? Yeah, we are. Our first beauty question. We seems like we got a couple of hair questions and a skin question here, and uh, time for three questions today. Our first hair question comes from Lily, and Lily Lily starts out the question in a way that that really gets us to answer these questions. She goes, Lily says, "Love the podcast. I'm so glad you're back. Keep up the good work." And I'm glad Randy has is gone. <laughs> Be <laughs> nice. <laughs> ah, good old Randy. I would love to know the chemistry of shampoo on colored hair. First, why does washing hair strip off the color of colored hair? Then what ingredients make the color safe for shampooing? And does purple or blue shampoo keep your blonde highlights blonde? And finally, how exactly does it work and will it work if it's old highlights so she packed four questions into a single question we get to answer all four because she started it out with a compliment <laughs> that's right well the first question is is easy enough why does washing hair strip off the color on colored hair well when you're washing your hair what you the, the reason it removes the color from colored hair is because the water will essentially swell the hair shaft. It opens up the cuticle, and that allows some of that hair color to leach out into the water and wash away. But I think at this point, it might make sense to talk a little bit about hair coloring and how that works. So when most people get their hair colored, uh, they have a cream or a liquid that's put under their hair. It contains some dyes. The dyes go into their hair. The hair color is washed off. And the product leaves, but the color stays in your hair. That's because the dyes have migrated through that swollen cuticle. Remember the cuticles, like a set of shingles on a roof, they just kind of pop up a little bit and the dyes can creep in there. And then the dyes will kind of polymerize, they become larger molecules, and then when the cuticles kind of shut down, then they don't leak out as easy. They're stuck, yeah. That's exactly how uh, permanent hair color works. There's other types that are more temporary, but that's how most hair color that's used works. So the dyes, when I put them into a cream formula, if I'm in the lab here making a hair color, the dyes, I just don't you know, throw them into a cream. I have to start out by putting them in the water because they are water soluble. They won't go into the solution if I pop them into the oil or at the end. I have to put them up front in the water. So they're water soluble. When you are in the shower and you're even just getting your hair wet, you don't even have to get to the point where you're putting the shampoo on. The water is entering the hair and it enters a little bit even more when you put the shampoo on, doesn't matter what kind of shampoo it is. And the dyes that were stuck in the hair, they say, ooh, I have this water. I can go into that water and then you you rinse the shampoo and the water off your hair and the dyes just happen to go with it a little bit at a time, but that's how the dyes come back out of the hair. They're in their original soluble state. You know, some years ago, I was involved in developing a product for Tresemme in which we were trying to create a product that would keep your color in your hair longer. And part of that research was that we looked at what are the factors that remove color from hair. And I'm talking about permanent hair color. And surprisingly, what we found was like the thing that removes uh, color from hair the most, more than any other factor, was just getting your hair wet and rinsing it with water. More so than the shampoo part, more so than UV light, it was mostly water was pulling the color out. 
Yeah, that's one of the tips I actually give. Um, if you've read any interviews I've done online with people about uh, color protecting products, you know, one of my tips is just water removes color from the hair. So really try to avoid washing it as much as you can if you want the color to extend. But the reality is people like to wash their hair. So maybe we could go into answering her second part of her question, which is what ingredients make the color safe shampoo effective? And maybe we could look at maybe more effective than water. The thing is, there isn't any one magic ingredient that uh, makes something, uh, makes a shampoo safe for color hair. Typically, when we, when we were creating uh, color safe shampoos, what we really did is we just used less detergent. And the notion was that, you know, less detergent is going to be less cleansing. And so that's going to strip less color. In reality, I never found that that really worked a lot better, but maybe your experience was different there. Yeah. And water does remove, shampoos do remove, you know, you can select shampoos maybe with less detergents like Perry said, or maybe they have a silicone like amodimethicone that's meant to protect the hair a little more than if the shampoo didn't have it, but don't have an expectation that there is a shampoo that will literally not prevent your color from fading. That doesn't exist with any brand, but you can make some better selections. Let's talk about this uh, blue and purple shampoo question. Uh, That's a very interesting thing. Uh, I know that for gray hair products, we would always include violet dye number two to sort of offset the brassiness. But how about for keeping your blonde highlights? Well, so this is talking about adding color to the hair during the shampoo process. So you could certainly say that's color safe, but uh, how this shampoo technology works is just using very simple color theory. I'll give a short version here, but I did write an article for chemistcorner.com just a couple weeks ago where you can see in a little more detail what I'm talking about or if you need a visual. But essentially on the color wheel, wheel we have these primary colors, yellow, red, and blue, and we can make multitudes of colors out of them by combining them. So We've learned this in kindergarten. When you mix yellow and blue together, you get green. Or if you mix blue and red together, you get violet. And those are called secondary colors. So how does this work on highlighted hair? So if we look at this violet purple shampoo that Perry talked about, on the color wheel, anytime you want to cancel a color, you use the complementary color of it. And this color is the one that lives across from it on the color wheel. So in the case of yellow, if your highlights are yellow, you move the color wheel, you go across and you see violet. If you applied violet over yellow, it's an additive color effect, meaning yellow plus violet would give you a a brown color, a neutral color of sorts. They complement each other to neutralize each other out. Also, if you have really brassy orange highlights, you look at the color wheel, You look at orange, you look at the complementary color that exists across it, and you see blue. So you would use a blue tone shampoo to neutralize your orange highlights. So they really do work. It's just using basic color theory, and uh, they're highly effective. Well, we'll provide a link to that article Valerie put in the show notes. And I think that can move us on to our next question. The second question Dulia asks does collagen really work in topical skin products? And I'm going to let Perry take this one. I used to work for uh, the St. Ives brand. And the St. Ives, the the biggest selling St. Ives skin product was the St. Ives collagen and elastin lotion. Really? I would have thought it was their apricot scrub. 
Well, that was their biggest. Uh, I'm sorry, that was their biggest single SKU seller. But for for their lotion line, the collagen oh, it was elastic. the collagen. Oh, okay. Oh man, I love that face scrub. But you know, they say it's not good to use. But uh, I actually really like the St. Ives products. But anyway, carry on. You know, I always like to use that face scrub too. Um, but the problem with it was I would use it on my face when I was in the shower. And then all of like the, the little walnut shells or stuff that would get caught in my chest hair. <laughs> <Drew> me nuts. <laughs> I didn't have that problem, thank goodness. I know, boy problems. <laughs> well, before we, get, before we answer about collagen, uh, let's just talk about collagen a little bit and why it is important to skin. Uh, collagen is a protein, and it's the major component of skin. It actually gives the skin structure, and, and essentially it works as like a scaffolding to which the rest of the skin is built. Now, collagen does a lot of things in the body, but for the skin, in addition to being that scaffolding, it also promotes elasticity, uh, flexibility of the skin, and it helps provide some protection to the lower layers of the skin and the rest of the body. It's produced by the body in many forms, but for the skin, it comes in these tiny fibrils uh, that are kind of meshed together to form the skin structure. Uh, The bottom line is it's a very important uh, protein for the skin which you can see why marketers would kind of latch onto this because if this knowledge gets out to the public, public says, ah, collagen skin, it makes sense there, then it makes sense for the marketer to say, oh, well, collagen makes sense in the skin, it makes sense in our lotion. So that brings us to the main question, why is collagen put in skin lotion and does it really work? So there are really two reasons that cosmetic producers put collagen in skin products. The main reason, honestly, is because collagen is an appealing ingredient to consumers, and that helps differentiate the product from all the other moisturizers out there, and it convinces people to buy it. Yeah, it's something they understand and love. I know what collagen is. I fall for it sometimes where I'm like, ooh, collagen. Sure. I mean, that that works with like lots of ingredients like, ooh, aloe vera. (laughs) I like aloe vera, right? In truth, this is the reason that most ingredients that you hear advertised about are added to products, right? Uh, you know, for the most part, brands, they don't want to talk about the ingredients in their formulas that actually are having the effect of the product. They'd rather talk about what we call these hero ingredients. Uh, hero ingredients are just some feature ingredient that marketers can talk about. Now, that's the cynical reason why collagen is added. Uh, but let's move on to the more scientific reason why you might it might make make sense to be added the logic behind using collagen in formulas probably goes something like that first the skin is made of collagen right yeah there's some in there right hopefully (laughs) you look young sure sure and then next as we age our skin produces less collagen i'm very saddened by that fact but continue It's it's just genetics now the lack of collagen is just one of those things that leads to sagging skin and wrinkles. <laughs> so adding back collagen to the skin should refresh the skin and make it look young again, right? I hope because I need it. it I is, will need it's, it. It's sound logic. You know, the, the, the one thing that I noticed as I get older is like I used to like to smash my face up into like a really small ball, the skin on my face. My mom told me it would stick like that, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, when I was younger, it snapped right back. Now that I'm older, it slowly goes back, sort of like (laughs) one of those stress balls or something. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay, so on the surface, this might make logical sense. Unfortunately, 
things are a bit more complicated than this. You see, the collagen doesn't provide the benefit in just any old form of collagen. We derive the benefits from collagen specifically because of the how, how the collagen is structured in the skin. The protein is built in a specific way in the skin, and it gives it the shape and the flexibility. So when you dump just a bunch more protein on top of that structure, that doesn't mean it's going to automatically get incorporated into the skin collagen in the right way to form the right structure. Now, I've used this analogy before as it applies to hair, but it applies equally here. Trying to repair skin collagen by just dumping more collagen on top of the skin is like trying to repair a hole in a t-shirt by dumping cotton balls on that shirt. Yeah, sure, the shirt is made of cotton and the cotton balls are made of cotton, but you know, you just dump them on there. That's not going to fix that hole. It has mm -mm. to be done in a specific way. And too, Perry, I think when you said dumping a bunch of more collagen protein on top of the skin doesn't mean it automatically gets incorporated. It sounds like a pretty big molecule. Right. It is, it is a big molecule. And the thing about collagen, it doesn't penetrate into the skin. Now, the collagen is... The collagen is found in the dermis layer of the skin, which is below the epidermis, which is the outer layer of skin. And so when you're, and, and the epidermis is where you put skin products. And so when you put pure collagen on top of your skin, it's just too big of a molecule to actually penetrate to even get down into the dermis where it could have any effect at all. Yeah, it's this thing that we like to go by called the 500 Dalton rule. Think of Dalton as the size or weight of a compound. And instead of pounds or kilograms, we call it Daltons. And generally, if something is larger than 500 Daltons, which believe it or not, is not very big, it's not going to go into the skin. Depending on the form of the collagen, it's not gonna get in there. Now there's another type of collagen, the one that's mostly used in skin products, it's called hydrolyzed collagen. And hydrolyzed collagen is just the protein broken down into a much more simplified structure. Unfortunately, it's nothing like the collagen that's found in skin. But I don't want to be too dismissive, right? So let's dip into our toolbox and take a little more detailed look at uh, collagen in topical treatments. So whenever you have to decide whether some sort of topical ingredient is going to work for the skin, it makes sense to uh, think of the three Kligman questions. Kligman was a famous research dermatologist who did a lot of pioneering work in the field uh, specifically related to cosmetics. So the first question is, based on the chemistry of the ingredient, is there a scientific mechanism that could explain how it would even work? Well, we've already talked about that, and while the way it's done in cosmetics is dubious, there maybe is some scientific theory which you could imagine the collagen put on the skin could eventually get incorporated into the collagen and the dermis. So there's at least a little bit of scientific theory behind this. Yeah, I mean, there's part of you that says, yeah, maybe that could be true. And that's where we need to look at scientific research and journals and try to see if that hypothesis holds up. But yeah, I mean, looking at the scientific mechanism, we looked at the logic and said, yeah, if that could happen, it, it might, but then that doesn't mean it happens. Exactly. It's so, so at least it's possible. All right. But then the second question, and we, we talked about this a little bit already, does it penetrate the skin to get where it is supposed to work? And we've already said, no, it doesn't. Right. And that's a good thing. You don't necessarily want things to penetrate. 
right? Exactly. Skin is supposed to be a barrier. The third question is, are there any peer-reviewed, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies demonstrating the ingredient really works when it's applied to people? Uh, no, there's nothing like this, not, at least none that I could find. So the bottom line on topical collagen is that even though it's been used in moisturizers for years, it's a very uh, common ingredient that you find, there's not a lot of scientific evidence that supports using it for topical purposes. It might provide a little bit of extra moisturization, but no, Dulia, I'm afraid collagen topically applied doesn't really do much. Oh, I feel feel bad because so many people buy these products, but that's, you know, Johan Vickers. I'm, I'm sure you've heard of him. He wrote the text, uh, Memories of a Cosmetically Disturbed Mind. He yeah. always said that's what the beauty industry is, trying to sell hope in a bottle. And, you know, the idealists would say, well, no, it's stuff that really works. And then... then. It, it, you know what? The thing about beauty products, uh, they really do work. It's just they rarely work the way that the marketers say they work. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's hope in the bottle for sure. Exactly. Hey, Valerie, guess what? Ooh, what? I love surprises. <laughs> uh, we've got our first audio question. Ooh, shall we listen to it? Yeah, let's do that. Hey, Perry and Valerie. My name is Jasmine. I'm from the Netherlands, and I wanted to ask you something about curly hair. Recently, I've been into Facebook groups who discuss the curly girl method, which is a method in which people with curly hair don't use any products that contain non-water soluble silicones, any straight up alcohol. So fatty alcohols are okay, but not denatured alcohol, any sulfates, parabens, or fragrance. And they believe that that magically makes curly hair better. They actually believe that doing this over a longer period of time will cause your hair to become healthier and will really try transform you. I personally believe that it does not come from the specific ingredients, but the fact that they start getting into this community and being so specific about using the right products for their hair. I think that these ingredients aren't making such a big difference as they claim. They claim that non-water soluble silicones really close off the hair and then washing the hair with sulfates, then strips the hair again. And it's like the cycle of being harsh to your hair, which is unnatural and unhealthy. I was really wondering what you think about that. But another part of it is protein sensitivity. They believe that there has to be a balance between hydration and protein products. And too much protein makes your hair like dry and brittle. And too much hydration makes your hair then soft and limp. So I was wondering, do any of these ingredients, their banned ingredients or protein, really make a difference? Or is it just about finding the right products for your hair? And if these ingredients don't make a difference, can they still be used as an indicator to find the right products for your hair? Thank you. All right, thanks for that question. We, we really do appreciate the audio questions. And if you have one, uh, feel free to record it on your smartphone and then email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. For this question, though, there is a lot to unpack here. First, I want to point out that the curly girl method was developed by a hairdresser, and she didn't use a scientific approach to develop it, right? Rather, I'm sure it was created through a combination of just trial and error in her salon and then a lot of anecdotal evidence. And the method has kind of morphed uh, over the years. It was originally written about in the book Curly Girl, but I see that it's, it's kind of morphed because now they've included things like avoiding parabens and fragrance, uh, which was never in the original method. 
and now I'm just looking at this. We could really do a whole show on the method, but we're gonna we're gonna stick to some specific claims. So first, there's the claim that sulfate shampoos are too harsh, and you should use sulfate-free products or conditioners only. Then there's the claim that you should avoid silicones or non-water-soluble silicones, and then of course the claims about avoiding parabens and fragrances. And finally, there are claims about how you should style your hair, like don't use heat, don't comb your hair, and don't use a towel. So let's start with the first claim, Valerie. Are sulfate shampoos really too harsh for curly hair, and should sulfate-free products be better? Well, curly hair does have a different morphology or shape than the standard hair fiber. There's a lot of studies that have been done within the last 20 years, 30 years, you know, even since the 60s to study the shape of the hair fiber. And L'Oreal research scientists actually developed this whole classification system about curly hair. So there is a scientific recognition that curly hair does have a different shape. It still has the same chemistry as other hair, but I think the physics behind this shape is really a lot of the reason that people see breakage or tend to see breakage when they're styling their coif. So in understanding that for our next few questions, sulfate-free shampoos and sulfated shampoos, it depends on the level of cleansing that your hair needs. So we all know that sulfated shampoos, typically you can identify by seeing ammonium lauryl sulfate or sodium lauryl sulfate, sodium lauryl sulfate on the label, they are really efficient cleansers, very good at getting oil, sebum, product buildup off of the hair. And sulfate-free shampoos are more gentle because they actually have less cleansing ability. They're less detergent in their makeup. So that's generally where that claim comes from. I, I would point out, though, that it's it's a kind of a concentration thing, though. If you used a shampoo that had half the sulfates of uh, a, shamp- a non-sulfate shampoo that had twice as much detergent, it would be less harsh than the non-sulfate free. So it's not so simple or you just so, oh, I should just avoid sulfates and then I'm getting a gentle shampoo. And there's some sulfate free shampoos that actually leave buildup on the hair, not from the other ingredients, but the actual surfactants in them. And they're really not good for the hair. They're very drying to the hair. So it really depends on the formula and it depends on your own hair. Like how clean do you need to get it? And you don't have to use it every day. You can alternate between them I personally love sulfate-containing shampoos at least once per week to get my hair and scalp uh, really clean. Yeah, and I I use them every day, so (laughs) there you go. All right, how about the claim about avoiding silicones? So uh, avoiding silicones or non-water-soluble silicones, we did discuss this a couple episodes ago. Uh, There's also that claim that they discussed that, you know, you should avoid parabens and fragrance. I I don't want to spend any time on parabens and fragrance because... The fact is they have no contribution to performance. They don't adhere to hair. And I think that's really just someone identifying buzzwords of things to avoid in products. Right. It's just a ridiculous addition to this method. Uh, It's sort of a new addition, but there's nothing about parabens or fragrances that are going to be bad for your hair. So silicones, I mentioned in the episode a few episodes ago, I really hate when people lump avoid silicones. Silicone is a generic term for a compound that has the silicon atom in it, SI, if you look at the periodic table. It's really a generic term. There's so many different kinds. There is an initial synthesis point from sand, and then they get converted into 
maybe cyclic silicones that are really volatile, so they feel light on your skin or hair. And then there's these really heavy silicones for substantivity. And then there are silicones that are modified to have specific functions. So in the case of a non-water soluble silicone like amodimethicone, the reason this silicone is so great for color protection, that's what it's used for, is that it repels water. Earlier in the episode, we said that hair dyes love water. They love to be in it. So this silicone helps repel the water from the hair, and then the dye doesn't have to wash out of the hair. So it really depends what your your needs are. If you're needing thermal protection, you need a product with silicone in it. Don't lump all silicones into one ugly basket. That brings us to the third claim. They say, for curly hair, don't use heat, don't comb your hair, and don't use a towel. Well, pretty much don't touch your hair. Um, (laughs) There is some validity to this claim. If you remember when I talked earlier about all these studies with the morphology and shape of curly hair, it really is different, and it's all about physics. And this goes with any hair shape, whether you're curly, straight, frizzy, coarse, fine, medium, whatever your hair texture and style is, any manipulation to the hair fiber, it's exactly like a sweater. If you have a sweater that's brand new, your, your sweater's made out of wool. Wool is just like uh, hair in terms of its composition. The more you wash it, the more faded it gets. You might get a little tear. That's exactly what happens to your hair when you use mechanical forces on it, combing, touching. Heat is terrible for hair. Don't use a towel. They're just saying don't bend and twist your curls because of physics. They may break in a weak spot. Yeah, all of all of these things will damage your hair. And so if you avoid them, you'll probably have less damaged hair. And that goes for everybody. Yeah, it might be harder to style your hair, of course, and or get ready. But it will definitely uh, be less damaging. Yeah, these are just good practices that when you use hair products and choose the right products for your hair type and determine what you're going to do with it. Just just use common sense. Part of the curly girl method is having this routine. And at the end of the day, if a product is working for you and your hair to prevent breakage and you feel beautiful when you put this product in or when you style your hair that way, just go ahead and do it and use common sense with the maintenance. Yeah, I I think that's good. There was this second part of the question about protein sensitivity. According to Jasmine, the curly girl method says too much protein makes your hair dry and brittle and too much hydration makes your hair soft and limp. Have you heard of something like this? Actually, I have. If any of you beauty brain listeners follow my personal Instagram, cosmetic underscore chemist, I'm just putting a little plug for myself, uh, you'll see that that I (laughs) read... Randy always loved it when I did plugs for Kemma's Corner. <laughs> woo woo. Yeah, um, I'm just kidding. So on my personal Instagram, I actually post a lot of photos about hair and hair color and just lab life because that's what I love. But I actually posted a photo of this uh, film. It's a yellow see-through film. That's actually a sheet of pure protein that's had all the water removed. So protein, you know, there's many types of proteins, just like there's many types of silicones. It depends on what the plant origin is. But Proteins generally are film formers, especially uh, the larger size proteins like wheat and uh, keratin protein extracted from wool. So they form this film over the hair. And this film, think of it like a network or a fence or almost like if you had a cast on your leg, if you broke your leg, it provides support. 
and this network for the, you know, the inner leg, or in this case, your hair, when it does form this hard layer, if you try to have mechanical manipulation, like bending the hair or brushing it or heat styling it, if there is too much, the hair may break. So with the physics of curly hair and how it is prone to breaking more easily because of the curl degree, it can be bad. So you would want to, if you're using a high protein product, you sort of want to add something on top of it to help soften up that protein at work a little bit. I haven't ever heard that too much hair hydration makes hair soft and limp. I just, I don't know if that means, oh, I didn't put any styling products in or any protein in, and that's hair in the natural state. I'm not really sure. I think that could be thought of as like your hair, if you're using things that moisturize your hair, they stay on the hair and they weigh the hair down and that can make the hair limp, I guess. I always thought about the the brittle piece of this. Maybe they're seeing like if the protein dries on there and then if you flex the the fiber, the the film might break and you'll see pieces of the fiber and people think that that's making hair brittle. I don't know how it affects the fiber specifically. It it doesn't. It's exactly what you just said. It's that big protein film sitting on top and when that breaks, it kind of takes the hair with it, kind of like breaking a Twix bar open, you know, the caramel goes one way or whatever. So it's exactly like that. So there's a little bit of misunderstanding here of, of what's going on, but you know, don't use too much protein. I guess there's, there's no downside to that. No, it's not harmful. And the last question that she asked was to the question of whether these ingredients can be used as an indicator to find the right products for your hair. No, really at, at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with these ingredients. Everyone's hair is unique. It's a different diameter, the actual fiber. People have different amounts of hair. It has different straightnesses or degrees of curliness. And at at the end of the day, whatever works for your hair, use it. Don't let ingredients deter you because not all proteins are the same. Not all silicones are the same and not all shampoos are the same. I think that's a, a good way to end that segment. We're going to leave a couple of links to some videos that I saw on the Curly Girl Method, which where we got some information on that. Yeah, and in the future, we'll go ahead and do a full episode. I think it's a very fascinating community. In addition to this book, there's also all these different spin-off communities and groups. And I, I akin it to when the Great Schism happened with the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, and then the Catholic Church split up Catholicism and Protestantism, and then all these offshoots of Protestantism happened. I feel like there's this big following of the curly girl, and then people have these discoveries on their own and say, oh, well, no, you can't do that. And then another person says, well, no, you can't use proteins. And so they have these different followings. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's such a cool, interesting community. And it's interesting to see the evolution of what they think people shouldn't shouldn't be doing. Almost all of it is just based on anecdotal evidence. Exactly. (laughs) Science based. It looks like we're at the end of our time today. Uh, it's too bad there was a question we could answer. Maybe we'll do it next time about uh, looking at whether ingredients used in cosmetics are safe. Ooh. The answer is yes, but we'll go into it a little bit more. <laughs> exactly. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. Hey, if you get a chance, uh, can you go over to iTunes and leave us a review? We used to read reviews, and we'll get back to doing that, but we need a few out there, so feel free to do that. That's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer, although I just looked, our list is like 750 questions. Maybe we'll find a way to get to them more on our social media or something like that. Well, we give priority to audio questions, so if you could send those, those are nice. Also, feel free to follow us on our various social media accounts. What would those be, Valerie? On Instagram, you can find us at The Beauty Brains 2018. On Twitter, we're The Beauty Brains. And we also have a Facebook page. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks, Valerie. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. We'll see you next time. Kittens!